Okay. Thank you, everyone, for joining us this morning. Uh, we will um, I will pass the mic over to uh, Robert Craig in a minute. Uh, I just wanted to welcome everyone to the call. I am uh, to to minimize background noise. I will be uh, muting everyone on the line. However, you can unmute yourself by hitting star six uh, if you have a question uh, during during the event. Uh, our speakers, you should not need to worry about start hitting star six. You are in a uh, different number. So uh, Jesse and Rich and, and John don't need to do anything. Um, but thank you guys so much for joining us. And just give me one more second. All muted. attendees are muted and may unmute themselves by pressing star six. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, this is Robert Craig, Executive Director of Citizen Action of Wisconsin, and thank you very much for joining this call. Um, I'm going to give a brief overview, then I'm going to hand it over to some excellent uh, experts and speakers we have. We also have on the line John Peacock, the Research Director of the Wisconsin Council on Children and Families, uh, Dr. Rich Brown, who's a substance use prevention expert and founder of the Wisconsin Initiative to Promote Healthy Lifestyles, UW School of Medicine, and Jesse Heffernan, a certified recovery coach at Helos Addiction Recovery Services. And then we may have a few words from our organizing director, Kevin Kane, as well. Uh, so I'm going to give a brief overview before kicking it to our experts on the call. Uh, but this morning, a little over an hour ago, uh, the waiver was actually submitted. It's a uh, Section 1115 demonstration waiver on, uh, on Badger Care submitted to the federal government. And the process is there's a 30-day uh, period for public comment. Um, and there will also uh, likely be, and there have to be, according to statute, public hearings about the proposal. And so there are a number of provisions in this proposal that are of great concern to health care um, advocates and also uh, experts in, uh, in, in substance use disorder um, and, and drug treatment in general. Uh, that, then that, that's the one that's gotten the, mo the most headlines, but there's even more to it than that that our speakers will talk about. Uh, but it's very clear, and by the way, this has to be approved by the Trump administration, and this would, these all, most, many of these provisions would have been seen as impossible under previous administrations, Republican or Democrat. So what makes this even possible is the uh, new administration, uh, but quite frankly, this is probably a test for other states. In other words, Wisconsin and Scott Walker are taking the lead on this, but if approved, it sets a new precedent and becomes something other states can apply for as well. Uh, let me speak uh, specifically to the uh, provision that's gotten the most attention, uh, the drug testing uh, part. Uh, just to be clear, we think that this is mostly political um, and that it's terrible public policy. That from a political standpoint, it kind of falls back on stereotypes people have about who is who needs badger care and is on badger care and what drug abuse and drug addiction are, uh, which are false and are, are contrary to, to current medical science and, and medical opinion. And so quite clearly, it's understood in the medical profession, uh, substance use disorders as a, as a medical condition that should be treated as such and is not a moral failing. It is not something someone is doing wrong and is therefore on badger care. And so having a, a forced screening and testing program uh, is completely inappropriate. It'd be like having a forced screening and testing program for the flu. It's much more appropriate to have uh, very well-funded preventive and treatment services that are well, very well they're publicly uh, available and uh, that's great public information about so people know that they're available rather than forcing people through this system. Um, so that, and by the way, they're spending 
according to press reports, $48 million for drug testing across the uh, public benefits programs, not just this, but food shares as well. That's $48 million that could go into a much better uh, drug prevent, uh, uh, substance use prevention and treatment program, uh, not only building up very robust prevention programs, and treatment programs that are available to everyone, uh, whether on private insurance or on Badger Care, but also with coordinated care that stays with people uh, once they go through treatment and make sure and, and tries to help them stay on the on their regimen and stand stay off of the substances they were that, that they were abusing. Uh, those, that would be a very good investment. This is not. This also even more broadly with the work requirements in it. Um, and the, the job training requirements and the time limits in it, the 48-month time limit, inappropriately conclude that people are on badger care because they're doing something wrong that, that is inappropriate, when in fact uh, middle-class people and upper-middle-class people cannot afford health insurance and health coverage on their own because of its cost or medical care on their own in this society. And low-income people, uh, most of whom work, many of whom have service sector jobs that do not that tend not to provide health coverage, have no other alternative other than badger care. And so if we, we want people to have health care and, and access to health care and any kind of right to health care, then this that a cap is just completely inappropriate and actually also spreads stereotypes for political purposes about why people are on badger care in the first place. So overall, we think this is both both terrible public policy. It actually advances uh, stereotypes about drug use and drug addiction, which are very detrimental to us dealing with as the public health uh, crisis that it is, including it, it, it makes us less able to cope with things like the opiate crisis because we're purporting old stereotypes that are not based in medical science. Uh, it may be very good politics for a governor's race, but that's mostly what it is. It's, uh, it's horrendous public policy and sets the state back, both in terms of health care coverage and in terms of our approach to, to, to substance use disorders. So with that, I want to turn it over to someone who tracks Medicaid really closely, who really is our go-to person um, in many ways on Medicaid issues, uh, John Peacock, the research director of the Wisconsin Council on Children and Families. So, John, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you, Robert. Um, and I, I want to start before I sort of get into my, my comments, just one sort of technical clarification on what you saw. And, and uh, we're just seeing the uh, the document that got released this morning. It actually, at this point, is still a bit sketchy. It's not the full proposal. That's coming out on Wednesday the 19th. And so that's when the comment period, the 30-day comment period will start on Wednesday. Uh, but uh, so with that clarification, uh, get, getting into my brief thoughts uh, on these proposals, uh, these requested waivers will impede our state's ability to achieve three key goals set by Governor Walker, the goals of expanding the Wisconsin workforce, avoiding having a coverage gap in our state's health care system, and his goal of cutting in half the number of uninsured Wisconsinites. We're particularly concerned about the proposal to charge premiums to almost all childless adults participating in Badger Care. Dozens of studies have found that even small increases in premiums cause many low-income people to lose their insurance coverage. And keep in mind that the upper income limit for Badger Care right now is only about $12,000 per year. So it's, it's that population making less than 12000 a year that's affected by this premium requirement, 
which will apply to any individual in Badger Care making more than about $200 per month. Uh, for many of those people, they don't have checking accounts. They don't have credit cards. And it's going to be very difficult, just as a practical matter, for them to pay monthly premiums and very costly for counties to collect those monthly premiums. But the premium requirement won't only hurt those low-income adults. They'll also result in a less healthy workforce and a significant increase in the cost of uncompensated care for hospitals. We're also very concerned about the 48-month time limit. That's likely to cut off care for, for uh, some individuals with chronic conditions. And you need to note that the exemptions do not include individuals with substance abuse diagnoses. Uh, those individuals may need some kind of treatment well beyond the 48-month limit in order to help them uh, find work and recover. In short, we oppose these proposals because they will make Wisconsin less healthy and they will result in a smaller, not a larger, Wisconsin workforce. Thank you. Thank you very much, John. And I, I think a lot of John's comments here reinforce our concern that this is mostly about uh, driving people off of Badger Care, which is a very inappropriate thing to be doing right now. And the fact that the uh, state's PowerPoint begins with the cost of Medicaid tells you that this is much more cost-driven than any concern about uh, the well-being and, and health care access uh, of people across the state of Wisconsin. So with that, I want to turn to really one of the top uh, substance use prevention experts in the state who is nationally known, uh, Dr. Rich Brown. Uh, who is the founder of the Wisconsin Initiative to Promote Healthy Lifestyle at the UW School of Medicine. So, Dr. Brown, thank you very much for joining us. And thank you for having me, Robert, and good morning, everyone. I'm going to speak especially to the uh, provision that uh, proposes uh, drug screening uh, as a requirement for eligibility for Medicaid and other assistance programs. Uh, first of all, I think it's important to recognize that drug screening doesn't just involve collecting specimens and sending them to a lab. It's a complicated process. Results for each individual need to be compared to what would be expected given the medications that each individual is taking. So a uh, physician typically uh, needs to be involved with that process. False positives occur quite frequently on inexpensive drug tests requiring very expensive tests for corroboration. So drug screening large numbers of people is a complex undertaking if it is done correctly and fairly. And if it's not done right, and if people are unfairly deprived of Medicaid and other assistance, the state could expect some expensive lawsuits. If the purpose of this policy is to sustainably discourage drug use, then the policy is doomed to fail. Most drug users can simply quit for a few days before scheduled drug tests and pass the test. For those who choose not to quit for a few days, the Internet is full of guidance on how people who are using drugs can escape detection. So drug testing would likely not identify many people who are using drugs. Most drug users would still end up on Medicaid, which I think actually would be a good thing. Let's now think about the people whose drug tests do reveal recent drug use. Most of these people who couldn't quit using for even a few days will be people who have difficulty controlling their drug use. And this is essentially the definition of addiction, the inability to control one's drug use. Many people with positive drug tests will be people who need addiction treatment. 
It's sad that Wisconsin already has many people on waiting lists to receive such treatment. These waiting lists make treatment less effective than it could be because the longer people wait for treatment, the less likely they will actually end up in treatment. The $48 million proposed for drug testing Medicaid applicants would be much better spent expanding treatment programs and reducing wait times for people who already want treatment but cannot get it on a timely basis. This would be a much better approach than drug testing Medicaid applicants if our goals are to reduce drug use and related health care costs. Let's also think what would happen to people who are denied Medicaid because of positive drug tests. Well, depriving drug-addicted people of Medicaid will deprive them of high-quality health care. And as Robert mentioned, this is the last thing we want to do during our current opioid epidemic. The best treatment for opioid addiction involves medication. In Wisconsin, Medicaid funds 36.5% of all medication for treating addiction. There has already been so much wonderful HOPE legislation aimed at strengthening drug prevention and treatment. Withholding Medicaid from people who test positive for drugs would go against the intent of HOPE legislation and deprive people of the most effective treatment for their addictions. As we witnessed during the most recent presidential campaign, Americans want more and better help for addiction for their families and communities, not less. If the intent of drug testing Medicaid applicants is to reduce Medicaid roles and save taxpayer dollars, then that intention is doomed to failure as well. Untreated drug-addictive people suffer many medical complications, including overdoses, hepatitis C, HIV, AIDS, and other serious infections. Untreated drug-addicted people without health insurance will still show up at emergency rooms and will still have expensive hospital stays. People without insurance who don't have access to primary care tend to delay seeking treatment for their medical problems. When they do seek treatment, treatment is usually more intensive and therefore more expensive. Hospitals are required to treat these very sick uninsured patients and will simply pass on those costs to commercial insurance companies. So it might seem that taxpayers would save money if fewer people have Medicaid, but the money that taxpayers save from lower Medicaid costs will instead be spent on higher health insurance premiums. A much better approach to addressing drug problems and reducing Medicaid costs would be promoting SBIRT, S-B-I-R-T, which stands for Alcohol and Drug Screening, Brief Intervention, and Referral to Treatment. SBIRT takes place in general health care settings. It involves verbally screening all patients once a year by asking them a short set of questions about their drinking and drug use. Most patients respond accurately because they trust, they, they trust their health care professionals to maintain confidentiality. Those who say yes to any screening questions are asked additional questions to identify their level of risk or problem. The few patients who are addicted to alcohol or other drugs are referred for treatment. Most patients who screen positive fortunately are not addicted, but they are drinking or using drugs in ways that are causing health and social problems or pose risk for such problems in the future. They receive brief interventions right then and there in general health care settings. After brief interventions, many people cut down on their drinking and drug use, avoiding health problems, emergency room visits, hospital admissions, vehicular crashes, and problems with the law. This saves everyone money. A study by my research team at the UW found that for every Medicaid patient screened in an SBIRT program here in Wisconsin, Wisconsin Medicaid saved nearly $800 in the next two years. Unfortunately, in a recent CDC survey of 17 states plus Washington, D.C., Wisconsin came out in the bottom three jurisdictions in the proportion of its adults who receive SBIRT. 
There's an old saying that applies here. You can catch more flunny than vinegar. Depriving drug users of Medicaid and other assistance is the vinegar. Espert is the honey. In summary, drug screening Medicaid applicants is simply a bad idea. It won't identify most drug users. It would deprive addicted people of the most effective addiction treatment, leaving Wisconsin families and communities with more addicted people who would still show up in hospitals and would still engage in criminal activity to obtain drugs. Money that Medicaid saves would be offset by higher commercial insurance costs, so ultimately taxpayers wouldn't save any money. If the state wishes to reduce drug use and save Medicaid dollars, a much better approach would be to use Medicaid's and ETF's healthcare purchasing power to encourage general healthcare settings to administer ESPERT. Thank you very much, Dr. Brown. And I think uh, in, in Dr. Brown's patient, you got a real sense of what a uh, substance use uh, disorder policy would look like if it came from actual experts in the field, as opposed to essentially being dictated by political considerations. You, if you went to experts like Dr. Brown and others, you wouldn't come up with a policy like this. It's, it's with the policy goals that have been laid out, not just in terms of substance use, but in terms of saving money and creating a, a, a more efficient, less costly healthcare system that will make matters worse in that regard as well, as Dr. Brown laid, off, laid out. So I want to now turn to Jesse, Jesse Heffernan, who's a certified recovery coach with Helos Addiction Recovery Services. So Jesse, thank you for joining the call. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Um, I guess I'm, I'm going to speak specifically more to the anecdotal in the trenches I'm a person in long-term recovery for the last 16 and a half years. Um, I also have had experience being someone, the recipient of um, these different types of services that we're talking about, both growing up and as recently with within the last few years as someone who was running their own small business, attempting to train more recovery coaches and get more recovery capital built throughout our state. To me, when I think about what this proposes, I look at it from the level of how is this going to negatively impact my community, the recovery community, and the substance use community um, in perpetuating stigma and uh, creating another place where we will ultimately hear the word no. So a lot of times, you know, throughout trying to navigate services and systems and look for treatment and look for help, you know, people seeking those things live in a world of no, and they also live in a world of having expectations. How are you? I have an appointment. Is there someone talking right now? There's like another conversation going on that's really distracting. Uh, my name is Fightinger. Yeah. Billy. We're going to try to mute. Hold on, Secretary. All right. I apologize. Uh, Billy, if you can hear this, please mute your line. Billy, are you on the line because we can hear you? They don't give you any forewarning either, do they? No, I wish they would. And like right here, right now. Billy, would you please mute your line? Sounds like it may have been muted, so sorry about that, Jesse. Why don't you just hand pick up where you were? No, there's still another conversation. Oh, great. All right, 
I, please try to go ahead, and I will try to deal with this. Uh, yeah, I'll do my best. Yeah. Nope, it's all good. So as I was saying, like the, you know, perpetuating negative stigma and living in this world of no, where people seeking recovery are constantly turned away from services and opportunities. And yes, I believe that the Esper program is definitely one of those things that, you know, in that heat of the moment, when there's an opportunity for someone to talk to a trusted healthcare provider or get access to some kind of services, um, that it's really important to be able to have those. What I, in what research I was able to do regarding this legislation and looking at it, what, what I don't see is even though they're inviting this idea of accountability and potentially offering up um, follow-up services with it, the fact is that we don't even have, if, if we were to really take this into consideration, we don't even have the number of treatment beds or treatment services available to handle the influx that potentially they're looking at, you know. Um, so, again, like, how are we setting people up in this system for success is, is my biggest question. And, you know, having worked with some legislators and some other folks, um, I think it's very important that we look at, you know, setting people okay. up for those things so and, and being able to provide the uh, – Wow, that is really distracting. Um, providing opportunities for them to access treatment and recovery services. And so one of the big things that I've been doing for the last couple of years is, um, you know, training recovery coaches, people that can help navigate all these systems and figure out what plans and what things work for them. Um, and, and know, too, that for someone who's actively using or someone who's seeking recovery, and we ask them to kind of pull themselves up by the bootstraps or we say that you don't qualify for this or that you need to go and take all this additional testing. We're then asking someone who already carries um, some burden with them, whether it's, you know, substance use disorder, mental health issues, or even tra trauma, you know, we're asking them to go out and do all these things now, like go to these buildings, go to these new places, go into stuff without really being there with them. Something like this, it, it, and I get, like, this isn't all the statistical stuff, but I guess I really operate a lot of these things more out of the heart and out of compassion. And how are we just treating people? You know, how are we treating them with dignity? And is this really something that does that? You know, if you look at it, it's it's something that maybe on paper they're really trying to sell as something that would help out, but is it really an opportunity for us to help people and to help them find their lives and to help them be back with their families and to have a quality of life that will bring them into a place where they can then be a uh, productive member of society. Because that's ultimately the goal here, right? When we talk about substance users, like those are the people that I know on a regular basis and we're trying to improve their quality of life. They're not just numbers or or people that I read about in the newspaper, they're people who are struggling. And I get on social media and I get me emails every day about parents who have lost their sons, their kids to this. You know, and I think about the parents and the folks that I know within recovery who struggle to be able to make ends meet. You know, self-medication is a real thing. And, and I think having the access to the adequate services um, through welfare, through different programs like that is, is extremely helpful. And again, it was something that um, I both lived with and something that I used recently that helped our family system um, and make ends meet. So um, I guess I'm more open for for questions and, and talking about this too from the recovery side. Thank you.
Thank you, Jesse. That that was very eloquent, and if any uh, any if any of the media heard it, couldn't get it fully. Uh, we will obviously yeah. give your contact information out to them so they can yeah. get it fully. But I thought that was extremely well said. So um, I don't know, Kevin, if you had anything to add. If not, he does not. So we will go to questions and answers. Uh, Q&A for anyone on the call and it, uh, for media, and it's a star six uh, to unmute your line. And we'll just give folks Hello? a minute to be able to unmute. Yeah, yes, go right ahead. Are we ready for questions? Yeah. Hi, it's David Wahlberg at the State Journal. Um, Dr. Brown, um, the, the Walker administration has said that they would refer anybody who tested positive for treatment, and I realize um, a couple of you touched on the lack of beds and how it's hard to get treatment already, but, but generally, isn't that a good thing that they said they would get people treatment? Well, it potentially could be good for some people, but yes, the waiting list issue is, is really critical. We're identifying people with needs that really cannot be met well. Um, it, it also should not be taken for granted that most people with positive drug tests actually need treatment. So they would initially need an assessment to figure out what their treatment needs are, if any. Um, perhaps people really just need a brief intervention. So I agree that systematic drug testing would be a good thing. The question is in what venues the service is delivered. And I think the research is actually very clear that uh, the best settings for these services to be in are healthcare settings where, again, we are uh, engaging with people who trust the healthcare professionals. There's no potential... Uh, downsides to revealing potentially sensitive information. Uh, much much better to do it in settings where people trust their healthcare providers, where they can receive brief interventions on the spot, where we can work with people over time to address their issues, rather than to administer this in, in a punitive uh, setting. Okay. Anyone else want to respond to uh, David Wahlberg's question? Yeah, I'll actually add another. Thing. Go ahead. When we do urine drug tests, we're we're basically trying to identify something that patients don't want identified, so they can go to great lengths to actually hide it. And as I mentioned, there's a number of internet websites that tell people how to do just that. Whereas if verbal screening is done in a healthcare setting. We do get most people just freely admitting their substance use. So we would identify many more people who actually would benefit from brief interventions and treatment with ESPERT uh, in a healthcare setting than the uh, more punitive uh, setting uh, of a of a application for uh, potential assistance that people need. And I get and to Dr. follow Brown. that up. And, oh, go ahead, David. Go ahead, Sorry. Um, this is Jesse. Oh, yeah. I guess I would just say that, um, you know, looking at it, again, in a sense that, you know, addiction and substance use, like, and it, looking at this as like a hydra, if you will, and every time you try to cut off a head, more things happen, more people find more unique and creative ways to get past the system. And, and this just really echoes what Dr. Brown said, like, you know, 
there will be a way found around it. And so rather than focusing on just trying to um, be reactionary and cut these heads off in like some kind of acute situation, like what are we doing further down the stream with the prevention piece of it? What are we doing to really provide long-term recovery care for these folks, you know, um, and, and I think that's really more where the focus needs to be and, and how they're providing it. So they could say that, yeah, we're going to provide treatment options for people. But even then, we know that statistically, if people aren't receiving services um, for more than six months and they're just kind of on their own after that, they're, they're not as likely to succeed in a rec- long-term recovery plan. There's a there's a framework called recovery-oriented systems of care that views a person's kind of journey is five to 10 years, not just, you know, 30 days. So how are we really looking at the further down the stream and then making a larger scope, more pathways of recovery and opportunities for people um, if they were to be involved with something like this? Uh, Thanks, Jesse. And I I think uh, just to summarize in a sentence or two here, we don't have enough invested right now to help people who voluntarily want to seek a solution to a substance use issue or people who would come forward voluntarily if they were in a non-punitive kind of uh, uh, screening, as Dr. Brown has described. And so moving to this punitive approach actually uh, goes absolutely the wrong direction. It makes the situation worse. We should be investing the money they're going to spend on this and more money than that on a a real 21st century substance use strategy. Uh, that includes prevention, screening, and treatment only when necessary. Um, so um, other questions, and, and David, you can follow, uh, ask a follow-up, too, if you have one. I do have another question, if, if others aren't sure. asking. Um, so uh, this would be for John um, Peacock. Um, John, you touched on this, and I know we've talked about this before, but um, in terms of the premiums, they're talking $1 to $5 a month, and to, to some readers, that would seem like a fairly small amount. Can, can you just touch a little bit more on why that's still um, an impact? And, and, and also, um, they're also talking about making premiums lower for people who don't have or who have healthy behaviors or, I guess, don't have unhealthy behaviors. Um, sure. The, these premiums are going to apply to to uh, single individuals with incomes of between $200 a month and $1,000 a month. And if you're trying to get by on that little income, even a, a premium of, of just 5 or $10 a month is often going to be prohibitive. And, and as I indicated before, many of these individuals don't have checking accounts, they don't have credit cards, and so it's going to be difficult to handle just the logistics of paying those monthly premiums, and it's something that, that the, I think the counties are dreading having to, to handle. Um, so it, granted, it, it doesn't sound like, it, it's not a lot, but, but for people with incomes that low, uh, it's going to knock a lot of them out of the Badger Care program. Okay. Uh, thank you, thank you, John. And if you look at people who are having trouble affording rent, affording food, uh, affording everything else, and literally are in the rears month to month, perhaps trying to make a rent payment, um, then it does become a major a major barrier because um, they're because these folks are are 
are barely above water as far as their month-to-month finances. So yeah, that that's certainly my take. Um, other questions from our reporters on the call? I'm just give people another few little bit to unmute, star six to unmute. Hi, this is Kara from the AP. Hi, go right ahead. Yeah, Robert, you mentioned that the application was submitted today, but I was under the impression it would be submitted until May. I just wanted clarification. Yeah, there was something posted today. Um, Kevin, can you speak to what our John Peacock is? This I, the actual, I can, this is not the actual submission. Go ahead, John. I, I can jump in. So this, uh, what they posted today is a summary of of their proposals. Um, under federal law, they have to provide a 30-day comment period, um, which they will initiate on Wednesday. Uh, Wednesday is when they are going to release the or make public the full document, and uh, that that will then start the 30-day comment period. In the department indicates that they then plan to spend about a week reviewing the comments, uh, making any revisions, and filing the formal documents with federal officials on May 26th, and then that will start another comment period of 30 days to submit comments to the federal government about the state proposal. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, John, uh, for clarifying all that. Uh, other questions? And it's star six to unmute. Okay. Uh, well, thank you, everyone, for joining us for the call, and I'm sorry for the technical uh, difficulty. Someone with a speaking line was, had the phone in a... In a uh, loud area, which we couldn't automatically unmute, unmute uh, like we could the uh, lines that reporters used to call in. So apologize for that problem, and we'll be happy to uh, to put you in contact with any other speakers if you need any clarifications, especially if it was hard to hear, especially Jesse, um, when he spoke. So thank you, everyone, for joining us uh, today. Much appreciated. Thank you. Bye-bye.